Hi, this is Gabe Witcher. This is Caitlin Canty. This is Wyatt Rice. This is Sierra Hull, and you're listening to Bluegrass Jam Along, the podcast for anyone and everyone who plays bluegrass. Hey everybody, welcome back to Bluegrass Jam Along. This, I think it's going to be, apart from the Bluegrass Briefings, be the final episode of 2023. So I just wanted to do a bit of a recap, really. I'm um, particularly rubbish at looking back and seeing what's happened. I'm, I usually head down, keep going, keep going, keep going. Um, but I just wanted to reflect a bit on this year on the podcast because it's been an extraordinary one in so many ways. Um even just looking back at the list of stuff that had happened this year to be able to put this episode together sort of surprised me. Just the you know, just the amount of stuff that's happened in 2023. And I wanted to just think back a little bit and reflect on that and just for me personally to feel grateful for it, but also just to highlight to some of those of you who've arrived at the podcast this year, because I know there's quite a few of you, just what, what there is. And you, I'm sure there's so many episodes, some of you will have missed stuff. I wanted to just pick out some personal highlights from the year share some little bits um and yeah just you know it's been an astonishing year and I wanted to reflect that and it all kicked off in January I interviewed Nick Loy double bass maker about making a bass for Paul Coet of Hawktail and Punch Brothers and he it was a copy of Edgar uh, Edgar Meyer's bass and I chatted to Paul about commissioning it I chatted to Nick about building it and it's fascinating I didn't know much about basses and that was that was a real treat um so go back and check that out if you haven't heard it and I also spoke to Eric Skye who's a guitarist that I love he's um just thoughtful and toneful and interesting and the conversation was deep and a treat for me actually I really loved that one it was great um we also talked to Jack Hinchelwood about the upcoming Doc Watson 100th birthday celebrations back in January as well which was really cool. Um, but the, the one I wanted to play a little highlight from from January was this Sierra Hull interview. Um, not only was this the 250th episode of Bluegrass Jamalong, it was the very first, and to this date remains, apart from a couple of little bits I did at IBMA, the only interview I've ever done in person. Um, Sierra gave me some time backstage between Sandcheck and the show when I went to see her in London. And we sat and chatted. And still, I think at the beginning of this year, our minds were a little bit on what had happened during the pandemic, um, shutdowns, lockdowns, whatever you want to call them, being at home. And I was chatting to her about playing a lot with Bela Fleck and the My Bluegrass Heart Tour. She'd become a staple of his band and what that was like playing that kind of music after maybe not having played live or with other people so much for a while, suddenly putting all those hours in. And we also chatted about what was next for her, um, what she's got coming up. And that was just such a fascinating interview. I think Sierra is such an interesting musician and such an interesting person to talk to about this stuff. We talked for half an hour or so. I could have happily carried on for hours. But here's just a brief snippet of what we talked about. Well, yeah, and the Bela gig's kind of a whole different level of that than anything I've done. Just because, you know, that music is quite complex. So, I mean, now we really know the music pretty much inside and out. But, you know, early early on, there's a lot of rehearsing and a lot of time spent working on the music so that we you know, can really know it and really own it and play it comfortably, you know, like not that we couldn't have sort of, you know, pushed our way through a set and made it through, you know, by the skin of our teeth kind of thing, but you don't want that music to feel that way. You want to really feel like you can Mm. get inside of it, you know, and you can only really get inside music when you really have 
put in the time to really know it, you know, especially when it's music that you're trying to improvise on like that. And you want to really just be able to relax into that and, and not be sort of playing it stressed, stressed out, if that makes sense. Um, so yeah, I mean, just like the rehearsing and then, you know, usually we'll do pretty long sound checks and then we play about two and a half hours every night. So you're looking at, you know, days where we're definitely playing six or seven hours or more sometimes with a lot of you know, you're out on a three-week tour and you do that every day. It's it's a sure way to, to build some muscle <laughs> as yeah. a musician. And is, is it, maybe it might be too early to sort of know yet, but have you, is there any thoughts on what you've taken from the past year to... Presumably, presumably you're working on new material. You had the, the sort of the Bluegrass Concerto for Fresh Grass, which was, you know, that kind of a, a recent thing. Um, yeah. Is that sort of the start of a new project or was that a one-off? That was a one-off, but I've actually already, before that, been working on some new music and um, was in the studio just before we left on this tour, and when I go home, I'm, I'm right back to it, so just trying to squeeze in as much as I can. That, that's that been the tricky thing about doing as much touring as I've done in the last year. I would have loved to have been able to have more music of my own to put out, but there's not really been very much time off the road to actually you know get things done, and so a lot of the things that I've kind of been slowly squeezing in sessions here and there and working on things, um, you know, finally starting to get closer to having some things to share. Now, when and how it'll come out, it'll be a whole nother story, you know, so I'm not sure the timeline of all that just yet, but definitely getting closer to having some some things done, which is exciting. Yeah, and and you've got a band now, you were saying, as you were saying earlier. Are you sort of writing with the band in mind? Because obviously, like the last couple of albums, one felt, relatively sparse and mandolin centered one much more layered and much more sort of intricate stuff going on are you sort of writing now with the idea of those musicians yeah it's a little bit of a combo so like some of the things definitely like the fresh grass piece that you mentioned that was really the first time that i had written something specifically for a group of musicians to play like thinking about this is the, the instrumentation usually when i'm making a record i sort of just you know Every now and then you'll write a song and you'll know just immediately from the way it makes you feel or whatever, like this needs to have this instrument, this would be cool. Um, But I guess typically I'll just write songs and then depending on what the song kind of wants, I try to not put myself in a box these days. Like if we want to have drums on it, cool. If it needs to be something more bluegrass, cool. If it's going to be something that's more layered or just a guitar and vocal, you know, like whatever it might be, I try to be open-minded to that um and just kind of let the songs steer the way but yeah it was kind of fun having a a set project and a goal of writing around the the fresh grass piece to kind of go okay cool i'm gonna write this three movement you know concerto so to speak um and write it with these musicians in mind which are the musicians i've been touring with so that's been um upright bass drums fiddle acoustic guitar and me on mandolin and how sort of composed did it end up being as a piece? Is there sort of space in that where there's improvisation going on as well, or is it a... A little bit, yeah. I really wanted it to be a combination of things, so I wanted to be able to sort of flex my... Um, yeah, I say f- not flex, to, to be able to, um, you know, strengthen, kind of give myself a, a challenge um, in the sort of compositional side of things where I was really... You know, not just kind of going, here's a tune, let's play a tune. I wanted to be able to kind of go, well, what would happen if I actually wrote specific lines for 
the fiddle or the guitar to play while I'm playing this other counterline kind of thing. So, but I also wanted it to have that bluegrass spirit, which, you know, only improvising can sometimes bring. And so I wanted there to be uh, moments of both things. So I feel like it kind of wound up being, um, you know, a pretty balanced combination of of the two things where a lot of it, yes, is very scripted and it was written to be played a a certain way, but then there's moments where everybody kind of gets to have their, you know, voice be heard in in the improvisational sections of the pieces and that'll be different every time we play it, which is kind of fun. Is that something you think will be on the next record? Mm, We just recorded it. So we recorded it a couple weeks ago. and you know i don't know yet i right now i'm just recording a bunch of music and so part of me thinks it could be cool to have it be part of whatever the project is and then part of me thinks but if not then i'll have it and i'll just release it separately at some point that was sierra hole um and then february i chat to rob ikes and trey hensley about their new record i talked to trey before but it's the first time i talked to rob and that was really interesting um fascinating player rob he's been around a lot of people um, over the years and just yeah it was a really nice chat I really enjoyed that one uh, I think probably also the first time I talked to two people at the same time on an interview who were in different places and that was that was a challenge and also fun um, and then February saw the very first Bluegrass Briefing I'm not really quite sure how I arrived at that point of thinking yes let's add another episode every week but I did and it's been a lot of fun it's been great for me this year just to be able to put 10 minutes of stuff together every week keep me up to date hopefully keep you up to date and just you know, highlight a bit of new music, um, let you know what's going on in the world. I've really enjoyed putting those together and they are a permanent fixture now and they are going to stay. Um, March was all about Doc Watson. As I said earlier, I chatted to Jack Hinchwood about the Doc at 100 events um, and that was followed up by what became almost a five-hour special um, with some just some extraordinary conversations with Jack Lawrence, T. Michael Coleman, John McEwen. I spoke to Tim O'Brien, I spoke to Mike Marshall, I spoke to so many people for that. Um, and they were a real treat to put together. Um, there were a lot of work to put together, and but just the response from people and the sort of joy in it all, and getting to just be like personally a tiny part of celebrating Doc was was a lovely thing. Um, and I'm going to play you a couple of bits here, and it's really interesting that talking to people about somebody other than themselves gets you a different kind of interview than talking maybe about their music um, and so many times I'd, we'd have the interview the main bit and I'd say that's great I've got loads of useful stuff is there anything else you want to add and there's, there's two bits coming up one from Tim O'Brien and one from Jack Lawrence that these were their responses to that question have you got one more thing you want to tell me um, and I love them uh, so I'm going to share them with you now first up is Tim O'Brien I don't have much to add except that he was this uh, gracious modest guy as as much of a hero as he was i think he knew that but he sh- constantly shied away from it and uh he knew that he was a significant guy my my last meeting with him i actually called him up on the phone and it was uh i had to sort of steal my get my nerve up to to sort of kind of invite myself to his house because I was within striking distance. And a number of times I passed by there and he'd been friendly to me and, uh, and things, but he hadn't, I hadn't seen him for a couple of years and he wasn't on the circuit as much. He wasn't not in as good a health. 
And I called him up and I said, uh, I just want to see how you're doing. And he said, uh, I don't, I don't know who you are. And his, his daughter was there. Uh, Nancy said, Oh, you know him. He's a fi- that fiddle player from Merlefest. And he goes, Oh, you're that fiddle player from Merlefest. And he, we both knew that wasn't enough information, but we talked for a little longer and he started remembering and he invited me up there and he wanted to be a good mentor. Uh, you know, the people that loved his music, he loved playing music, but he knew I was kind of looking up to him and I would just wanted a little, you know, I just wanted a little, uh, one-on-one time with him. Never had it really, except for a few minutes here and there. And, uh, we sat the two of us, no one else, else was there for about three hours and played and talked. And, uh, I left there thinking he, he really, enjo- I think he really enjoyed it. He liked being Doc Watson in spite of his modesty. He knew he was something, something important and he knew he was given something back there. And that's what he wanted to do. I think all the young pickers that he befriended, you know, he, he really encouraged them. And I was lucky to be one of them. So that's, that's about all I got to say without going to tears. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I think about him. He's, he's such, such a really important figure uh, in, in my world for sure. And then also from the same Doc Watson episodes came this story from Jack Lawrence. It was a real treat chatting to Jack. Um, I'm so pleased that he took part in this, and I love this story. So here's Jack Lawrence talking about how he got a guitar from Doc Watson. You know, I own the the D18, Martin D18, that Doc used on uh, a bunch of the Vanguard records. Uh, on stage, um, oh, Home Again and the Flat and Scruggs Strictly Instrumental. Uh, he gave me that guitar, uh, that guitar, I don't know, uh, 35 years ago. Um, and the way I got it is kind of, is, is pretty funny. Um, at Christmas every year, the weekend before Christmas, Doc and I would, would play at a place in Johnson City, Tennessee uh, called the Down Home. And it was like our Christmas party, you know, uh, there we go over, we'd go over and play two shows, turn the house, do two shows. And, uh, did it the week before Christmas for 25 years. Um, and I would go pick up doc, drive across the mountain and we would do the shows and I'd come back usually driving with one eye closed. Uh, we would come back and I would stay the night with doc and Rosalie. So on those occasions, I would grab a, I'd, I'd go out in the kitchen and grab a cup of coffee and go down into doc's music room. And, uh, I noticed in the corner behind his, uh, stereo cabinet, uh, this old beat up guitar. And so I pulled it out, out of the corner and I recognized it as the guitar I'd grown up listening to on his records. And so I dusted, this bridge was coming off of it, and it had three strings, and there was a half an inch of dust on it. So, uh, you know, I pulled it out, and I dusted it off, and I was plucking on those two or three strings. And uh, then I took a big sniff of the sound hole. 
I'm a sound hole sniffer from way back. I love the smell of, you know, the interior of guitar, acoustic guitars. And so about the time I took that sniff in the sound hole, Doc was standing in the door and he said, what on earth are you doing? And I told him, so, well, there's this, you know, I found this guitar in the corner, you know, I think, I think it can be repaired. I think you can fix this up. There's still some music left in this old thing. So he said, well, you know, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. Well, it didn't happen that time. So this repeats itself for, I don't know, three, four years, you know, get up in the morning, get the coffee, go down and dust it, pluck the strings and sniff the sound hole. And Doc always said, well, one of these days I'll give it to you. So he finally did. Hmm. He, he finally did one, one Christmas. And he said, I just want the Grover Rotomatics <laughs> tuning <laughs> machines that are on there. And uh, I said, well, give me your wrench and screwdriver. I'll take them off right away. So anyway, I got it, uh, I got it home. And it was in worse shape than I imagined once I got a mirror inside. So anyway, it took me a couple of years piddling with it here and there to, you know, uh, doing all the repair work myself. I uh, finally got it back together and we were doing, we were doing the uh, dear old Southern home and uh, on praying ground records. We did both of those records in five days worth of sessions. Anyway, I got it back together and I thought, this is going to be cool. I can, I'm going to take this guitar. This guitar is going to be on a Doc Watson record again, only with me playing it. So anyway, we're setting up in the studio and I didn't tell Doc I was bringing it. Uh, we're setting up in the studio and I just laid it in his lap. And as soon as he grabbed the neck, he knew the, he knew the guitar <laughs> and he strummed it and said, well, Man, you were right. There is still some music left in this guitar. I, you know, I can't believe it. it you know, that it's playable again. And he played on it for about ten minutes and kept going on about what a good old friend that guitar had been to him and how, you know, how he just still loved the tone of that guitar and everything. And I could tell by the look on his face, he's thinking, "I should have fixed that thing. <laughs> I should have fixed that guitar." And so I. He was strumming away, and I leaned over and whispered in his ear and said, yeah, maybe one of these days I'll give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> and after I put those out, I actually put a few of the segments out because I had some amazing conversations. There wasn't necessarily, even with five hours of episodes about Doc, there wasn't room for everything from everybody. But I'd had particularly some really interesting conversations with Jack Lawrence, with T. Michael Coleman, with John McEwen, and with Tim O'Brien. And I put all four of those out as separate episodes, so you can go back and check those out too. There's a bit of extra content in those if you missed them. Um, yeah, they were just just really cool to get to do. Um, I also spoke to Noam Pakelny of Mighty Poplar, one of my favourite records this year, the Mighty Poplar record. If you haven't heard it, go check it out. Um, I've spoken to various other members of Punch Brothers over the past couple of years. Well, I hadn't spoken to Noam, and he's a he's a you know a real treat to talk to. Um, I love that record. There's a lot of really interesting chat about why they did it, what it means as an ongoing thing. Um, so do go and dig that out as well if you didn't listen to it. Um, also spoke to Rachel Bayman, who I'd met in London when she supported Sierra Hull and Justin Moses, and we'd had a chat about doing an interview then. And we talk about Rachel's record, Common Nation of Sorrow, 
which I'm a huge fan of. So if you missed that, go listen to that one as well. Um, but April became very much about Tony Rice and the way that March had been about Doc Watson because it was the 40th anniversary of Tony's Church Street Blues record, which I love. I know a lot of you love. Um, it's just such an important record to a lot of people. And much like the Doc one, I just tracked people down and spoke to them. Um, and and a lot of people said yes, and it was a, a treat to get to, to do it. And some of those people had played... With Tony, um, I spoke to Brian Sutton, I spoke to Mike Marshall, um, I spoke to Alison Krauss, I spoke to a bunch of people who hadn't met Tony um, but were really inspired by him. Um, and I ended up with, again, nearly five hours worth of stuff and I'd like to play you a couple of bits out of that. First is Alison Krauss and we chatted about Tony and his music and again I asked that question, is there anything else you want to share? And she just told me a couple of very sort of sweet memories of spending a bit of time with Tony that I think tell you a lot about Tony but also a lot about Alison she was incredibly humble incredibly um giving and generous and I'm so glad she took part in this I'm not sure she would have necessarily agreed to talk to me about her own music I think it's because it was Tony she was happy to take part and that's a beautiful thing that maybe sometimes talking about other people is something People are prepared to do more than talk about themselves. Um, and I definitely got a sense of that with the Doc and Tony stuff. And so here is Alison Krauss chatting about spending a bit of time with Tony Rice. Well, a, a, well, a number of years ago, first in the 80s, um, I uh, had a permit, and uh, a driver's permit, and I didn't have a driver's license yet. And we had played in Baltimore, but we were all staying in uh, Washington, D.C., and so he's like, Krauss, you drive. Mm. I'm like, oh, gosh, you know, I got a permit. Yeah. So I drove him back to the ho- you know, hotel where we all were in D.C. And on that way back, he played, um, you know, Benny Goodman. And uh, who's the guitar player? Um, oh. But he played another few bits of music that he loved and he's like listen to that you know listen to that listen to that and I'm like you know <laughs> more scared of driving and uh and that was just kind of a uh you know cool experience to get to talk or hear what he liked you know in any way about anything because I always used to wonder I wonder what he listens to when he's you know you don't know what someone likes and um and then Years later, and I think it was 2005, we did a tour with Tony, our band, and and uh, and we did all his songs because he had been doing that, having different people come sing the leads on stuff. So he did a tour with Union Station, and we did all that. And and Jerry says to me, he goes, "There's two tickets to the symphony. Go get Tony and take him to the symphony." And I'm like, "I don't want to." <laughs> I don't want to do it. He's like, get, take him to the symphony. And so, uh, you know, and at this point, I can't remember how old I am, you know, late thirties or whatever. And, and I pull up to the hotel and he's standing out there. He goes, Hey, you remember the last time you drove me? (laughs) You remember the last time you drove me? (laughs) And I'm like, I do. I was hoping you might've forgotten, but, uh, but we did, we drove to, um, the symphony and he talked about, uh, the guitar and not singing anymore and what that was like. And, um, you know, just that that's probably the only like those two times or the times I had any kind of private conversation where 
you know, he shared what he thought about playing and what he felt about what he heard and just about his own things. It was really magical. I'll, I'll never uh, forget those bits because it was, um, you know, a special time, even if it was for one time, maybe a little longer driving the car there, but uh, another 10 minutes to the, <laughs> to the symphony. But special to hear somebody you admire so much, even to say they like something. And uh, while we were in the, at the, the symphony hall, it was Edgar Meyer and a really beautiful piano player. And there was one moment that they were playing, and I remember it was so stunning, I held my breath. Like, oh, you know, like it took my breath away. And at the same time, he goes, <clears throat> like this one. Oh, my gosh, I like something at the same time. You know, whatever. It's uh, silliness, but but real. <laughs> was proud of myself for liking something at the same time. <laughs> That's lovely. <laughs> it was a moment. That, of course, was Alison Krauss. Um, funny thing about that interview is I sort of felt like we chatted for 20 minutes and I felt like I'd not really done a great job of it because I think I was nervous. I think I actually think Alison was nervous as well and it was that, have you got anything else you want to share question that brought out those memories of Tony and just, I think, yeah, it was a lovely thing to take part in. I, I enjoyed that so much. And the other thing... The other thing I got to do as part of the Tony Rice celebration was talk to Wyatt Rice. Um, it took a while to set up, um, and I'm so glad it happened. It was. I'm going to play you a bit of that right at the end of this year in recap. It was quite a moving thing for me. I think it's the first interview Wyatt had really given since Tony passed. I think it was quite emotional for him. I think I don't think he talked much about any of this. Um, I felt incredibly lucky to be able to have the conversation, and. A lot of it is in the episode that I put out about Church Street Blues um, and some of the stuff that wasn't really about Church Street Blues was just about Wyatt remembering hanging out with Tony, talking about learning from him, listening to him, hanging out with the musicians he was hanging out with, going to gigs with him, talked about like playing ovation guitars, recording together. Um, yeah, what a conversation. It was quite special. I found it quite moving, to be honest. Um, and there's a bit of that coming up at the end. At the end, I'd like, yeah, there's a bit of the chat with Wyatt coming up at the end of this episode. It was a sort of quite a remarkable thing that I won't forget. And that's one of the reasons it's nice for me personally to recap a bit on the year and just remember remember what's happened because it's been a whirlwind of a year for me and some really special conversations have come out of it. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as I've enjoyed doing them. Um, but then sort of moving on from that, over the summer I, I interviewed Brittany... Uh, and Natalie Haas about their duo record, which is great. Go and listen to that if you haven't heard it. It's brilliant. Um, that was a lot of fun. Natalie was in northern Spain, and we had a constant sort of backdrop of chickens and goats and various other things, which made for a very interesting recording experience, which I left in in the end rather than edit them all out because it's all part of it and who's got time. But do listen to their record because it's fantastic. Um, and only a couple of days after that came out, I discovered that Brittany was replacing Gabe Witcher in Punch Brothers. Um, and I'll talk to you about that more in a minute. But I also got a chance to interview Tim O'Brien again about his latest record, Cup of Sugar, which if you don't know, you should go and know it. That's a great record. Um, another chance to talk to Tim, which is always a treat. Always a treat. I'm talking to Tim again this week um, as I record this because he's going to take part in the Earl Scruggs 100th birthday thing that's coming out in January. So I'm very much looking forward to that. 
But talking to Punch Brothers and Gabe Witcher leaving, um, I read this and I saw this and I just fired off a message to Gabe on the off chance really and said, look, I'm a big Punch Brothers fan, I know you're leaving, I'd love to chat to you about it. And literally, I think it was two days after he'd done his final show with the band, we sat and talked for an hour about about Punch Brothers, about him leaving, about the production work he's done, about what's next, about his reasons for leaving and spending time with his family. Um, and I'm going to play you a bit of that. That was a, I loved that interview. I gave you such a eloquent conversationalist and he was open and he was warm and he was just, yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Here's a little bit of just Gabe chatting about the reasons why now was the time for him to step aside from Punch Brothers. Personally, we're all as, as good of friends and getting along as well as we ever have. Musically, we're making the best music I think we've ever made and playing the best as an ensemble we've ever played. And I have a, my voice memo app is filled with starts of stuff that we've collected over the last two years um, and, and really cool stuff. But there's also a whole life outside of that world that I have to consider now. And I have small children, you know, I'm married. Uh, and it's, it's really important to me to be able to create the stable environment that I had when I was young for my family and you know my kids are they're gonna be nine and six well one turned six yesterday actually um and the older one will be nine in a month and the idea that I'm I'm like I'm halfway there raising him is crazy to me because it feels like he was just born and mm-hmm. I just needed to put the brakes on stuff and 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 change the way that I'm going about my life so that I can really have this time with with them um it's going by so fast uh you know for as crazy as the pandemic was the shutdown is actually really eye-opening uh for me because i've been i've been performing since i was four years old and i've been performing professionally since i was six and i started touring when i was 15 and I turned 45 a couple weeks ago. I've literally been doing it my whole life and I've never thought twice about it. And I've just always been like forward, 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 go, go, you know, Oh, here's this next thing. I'm going to do this next thing. I'm going to do this next thing. And for the first time in my life in the pandemic, I was like a stationary. I didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have anything to do except, you know, wait this thing out and be with my family. And I was like, Oh, this is like really, this is an okay way to live. And I'm creating deep meaning for us here in this, in our family life. And being back out on the road last year, I love, love playing music and I love performing music and I love doing it with Punch Brothers and my bandmates and all of that. But I was out there going, boy, this is really taking away from this thing that we were able to create at home. And that thing is finite in that the kids will grow up and move mm. away. And I just, I just had this epiphany of like, I, we've been doing Punch Brothers for almost 20 years and it's okay to take a break. Um, I would be absolutely shocked if we never played music again together. I just don't think that's a possibility. <laughs> but for now, 
yeah, I, I'm kind of reassessed and prioritizing different things. Um, I think what, you know, the other thing is we, we achieved what we set out to achieve when we all moved to New York, we did the thing that we set out to do and we went way beyond it even. So I feel like anything else is bonus. And at this point, yeah, I want to be home. I want to, I want to have this time with my family and you know, yeah, when my kids are gone and, and, and grown, who knows, you know, maybe there'll be another punch brothers record or more things to, to have happen. Um, so yeah, that's kind of where I was at with it all. And it was a hard decision to come to, but ultimately, you know, I feel, I feel good about it and I'm excited about what's, what's going to happen. I also got to talk to Tim Stafford again this summer. Tim was part of the um, Tony Rice Church Street Blues celebration, obviously. Uh, but I got to talk to him about his new record, Guitar Melodies, which I love, one of my favourite records of this year. Um, and Tim's been just such a supporter of this podcast. I can't thank him enough. It was great to actually get to bump into him and have a very quick chat at IBMA. Um, I'm a big fan of Tim, and that was a great chat. Um, I also spoke to Caitlin Canty, uh, in July, who's another sort of Punch Brothers connection, really. The record was produced by Chris Eldridge. Um, Paul Coat played bass on it. And actually, Caitlin is married to Noam Pekelny of Punch Brothers and Mighty Poplar. Um, and Caitlin's, I guess, more of an American Americana singer-songwriter in terms of, you know, if you want to put labels on things, which we don't around here very much. But I'd just seen that she'd got this record out, produced by Chris Eldridge, but featuring... Um, Paul Coat and Brittany Haas and Sarah Jarose and just some of my favourite musicians and you know they, what a great band they are and we had a chat about the record uh, which is called Quiet Flame again one of my favourite records of this year um, and what a, what a lovely conversation it was you know we talked about music, we talked about life we talked about all sorts of things and I've gone back a couple of times in the last couple of months and listened to this one again um, it's just, it was a real treat and I'm going to let Caitlin talked to you a little bit about what a couple of her songs mean to her because it's the kind of stuff that I find fascinating. So here is Caitlin Canty. I'd been talking to a friend about how I have a hard time writing about something that happens today, you know, um, and, and spitting it into a song the next day. It's just, it's like groundwater. You know, it's not, uh, songs for me aren't I, I feel, I think the urge to write when I see a pattern emerge or when, you know, three different people sort of have a similar experience or are eyeing the, the exit signs, you know, in a relationship or sort of had a similar um, word they, they use to describe their, their, that's when it feels like something sparks. There's a, there's a, some threads I want to braid together and, um, and that's where a song starts to go. So yeah, there's a definite lag between like life events and the song that was inspired by those life events. So I'll probably be hitting my pandemic songs around age 55 or something. <laughs> it was, it's interesting because there are a couple of songs on this record that feel like sort of processing a breakup songs. Yeah, I guess there could be. Uh, let's see. So I was thinking of like maybe See the Day. See the Day. Yeah. Um, it's definitely got a hint of that. I don't think about you sort of yeah that's sort of feels that way too it, i don't think about you to me was less about a breakup kind of song but more um about the thing i find hardest to do is just let go of anything like a um you know when you shut down your 
you're about to go to sleep at night and your brain decides not to shut down and it goes over the thing you said that was, oh, the joke you tried that was, oh my goodness, how did I, you know, that kind of <laughs> punishment. Like I can't let go of a grudge or a um, injustice or a stupid thing I said. And so that song to me, I started to envision letting go of it, like the, a, some, a physical object in that song. If you look at the lyrics, it's moving further and further away from me. And for me, it's actually almost a, um, a practice. Like I, if I sing that song, I'm reminding myself how to let something go down the river and not pick it up and fuss over it, you know, how to um, let the string go on a balloon or let the, watch the smoke go from a candle, like let it move away from you. And it's, it's like the most self-help song I've ever written, I think. <laughs> well, it's really interesting because I sort of got a theme of that from um, from the record in general. And it's like, so Blue Sky Moon's got the lines about um, heavy current rushing by, I don't follow where it's going. Yeah. There's line about, no, I don't think of you, watch the memories flow by, I don't try to catch one, which is mm -hmm. very much what you try to do when you're not kind of chasing your thoughts. And yeah. there's, there's something... Um, it feels like there's a thread of that through the record, a sort of, and it was one of the, and I, I wondered about that because it's really funny that you say with, I don't think of you, that it's almost like a reminder to yourself because I was mm -hmm. wondering whether that's like, I don't think about, I don't think of you or whether it's the, the narrator of the song telling themselves like, I'm all right. I don't think about you. It's like, you know. Yeah. I think it, that, that song for me, there's such a country tradition or like, um, Oh, what's the song? Um, where there's a cloud don't mean there's rain. Tears in my eyes don't mean there's pain. Don't flatter yourself. I'm over you. You know, it's like this yeah, whole yeah. song about I'm so over you and clearly you're not. You know, that kind of country tradition, I think, is maybe infused in the I don't give you song. Um, that's probably where that finds its home. There's so many of those songs like She Thinks I Still Care, which is clearly, yeah, exactly. it's like, you know. Yeah. And, um, I think that I don't think of you and, and pull the moon are the two that I sing live that are almost like they're very helpful to me. Um, pull the moon just feels like a reminder that, you know, it's not supposed to be perfect out there. It's going to be rough. Like if it's gritty, it's, it's that's where it's supposed to be. You know, like sometimes I think young musicians go into that. I heard, I heard somebody talking about how they'd feel successful once they were touring with a bus, you know, like, I'm like, oof, you're not going to feel good for a long time, I think, because not too many people, you know, do the tour bus living. And if they do, they're giving up a lot to have, you know, to be gone all the time. There's not an easy way to do this. There's not, there's no real reason to do this. It's only mad people who like <laughs> spend their lives up on stage and we do it because you, I, there's something in you that has to, I guess, um, but that song, Pull the Moon, is just like a the disillusionment and the realigning of your um, <laughs> of your dreams and your reality. And I don't know, I, I and trying to get to the heart of the matter and find that spark again. Like sometimes if you feel emptied out, like you have nothing new to say or contribute or you no, know, I haven't heard a good new song in in years. You know, kind of feeling that that um, if that curmudgeonly side takes hold of me, like, like there's so many musicians I can look at and be inspired by or people, you know, who are um, doing their thing regardless of who's listening and how many dollar bills are flying through the door. And, you know, if there's one person in the audience 
fine by them. Like that's the, it's just, it's more about what the song is and what the, what the music is. I, I just, I, I love using that song to find my way back to the, the reason and the spark. I love that. Um, do go and listen to the rest of the Caitlin interview. Uh, as well, all of these, if you haven't heard them, um, go back and check them out. Uh, also, September, I got to talk to James Key from East Nash Grass, um, alongside Mighty Poplar, maybe two of my favourite band records this year, East Nash Grass and Mighty Poplar. Uh, and I got to see them very briefly play at IBMA, which was very cool. Um, that's a great record, really fun interview. Go and listen to that. I also spoke to Martin Simpson and Tom Yutz about their record, Nothing But Green Willow, which is a sort of reimagining of some of the songs collected by Cecil Sharp in Appalachia almost 100 years ago. And I'd spoken to Martin. I'd seen Martin at a gig, and he'd mentioned this. And I went and said, look, I'd love to interview you about it when the time comes. And it took quite a while for this record to come out. Um, but what a fascinating conversation and what a great record. Uh, just, yeah, the, the, one of the joys of this podcast is getting to sit in my little office, uh, you know, in the evening, UK time usually, with my headphones on, having an hour's conversation about really interesting music with some fascinating people. And this was a perfect example of that. Um, such a cool one. Do go and listen to that record. Uh, and do go and listen to that interview. Uh, I also got to go to RBMA because Bluegrass Jamalong was nominated for a Momentum Award. I was nominated for a Momentum Award, I guess, um, for the podcast, and which I won. But I went out and spent a few days in Raleigh, meeting people, watching music, had a whale of a time. Um, like, just doing this and talking back about all the things I've done this year, it feels like winning the IBMA Award should be a highlight, but actually these conversations feel like the highlights. Um just wow what a thing to get to do I still can't quite believe it um and there was more I put something out in in the autumn about Clarence White because I realized in doing some of the Tony Rice stuff that Clarence had passed 50 years earlier and we'd celebrated Tony we'd celebrated Doc it felt like a bit of a year of bluegrass guitar and I wanted to do something about Clarence um I didn't know as much about Clarence and Clarence didn't live as long, so he didn't leave quite the same sort of legacy. But I, it felt like he's a key figure in all of that. Um, and so I assembled a few people and we had a great conversation about Clarence. Um, and the key person that I kicked it all off with was David Greer. David spent some time with Clarence when he was a kid um, and is obviously influenced by Clarence and loves Clarence. And he graciously spent some time talking to me about that. And I'm going to include a couple of little bits here. First off... Um, just talking about, you know, how he first heard Clarence and, and met him, but also I'm going to follow that up with a little bit about how he found out that Clarence had passed and, and how he felt about that. So, yeah, here's David Greer. My father was a musician. He played the banjo. He played with Bill Monroe for two years, and he played locally, you know, around Maryland, D.C. and Baltimore when he wasn't playing with Bill. So... He had a lot of musician friends, and the Kentucky Colonels came to the East Coast, and Dad had met met them, you know, the Kentucky Colonels being a Roland and Clarence, and I don't know who all was with them at that time, but uh, those two for sure. And eventually, at, at some point, he invited them over to the house, and they had a jam session in the basement of our house, of dad's house. Um, and um, they're playing songs they know and having fun, I guess. I don't know. I was 
Anyway, they're playing, Dad was playing this tape. He had recorded it, you know, not fancy, just something for him to listen to, you know. And there's, he played it one night, one day, afternoon, <laughs> sometime, <laughs> in the living room at our house. He just played the tape because he had it, and I guess hadn't heard it in a while. And there's this baby screaming, like just murder. And, uh, I said, God, Dad, who's that kid screaming? He said, that's you. I said, oh, oh well, sorry, didn't know. I mean, a little baby. I must have been, you know, I don't remember the date, but I was little. And I don't remember that, but uh, that might have been the first time I'd met him, you know, or that he saw me or I saw him. But And then at my house, my dad's house, my house growing up, um, dad had three people that were his main influences. I'm sure he had others, but it was Bill Monroe, Earl Scruggs, and Clarence White. So, dad would play live tapes and records of all those people and other folks, but those were what I heard the most of. And, uh, so I was tuned in to Clarence, and I had met Roland growing up several times. If he ever came near, he'd come to the house, and we'd pick some, or if we went on vacation in Nashville, Roland and I would pick, and he was always, Roland was cool. But, uh, so that's where I'd heard of Clarence, and the records were amazing. I mean, the Colonels had unique arrangements, or more modern arrangements of songs that all these old guys did, <laughs> you know, to me being, you know, 12 or something or 10, they were old guys. And, um, it seems like Bill Monroe was always old <laughs> to me, which, you know, he wasn't, but to me, seemingly anyway, I, I knew Clarence's music. And I, he didn't sound like anybody else. He was one of them people that as soon as you heard it, it's like, oh, my God, that's Clarence. Just his timing, the syncopation, the tone, the everything, his voice was so unique. And back there, everybody sounded different. I mean, Don Reno sounded different than George Shuffler, who sounded different than Doc and Dan Crary, and sounded different than Tony Rice. They all... Norman Blake was, they had their own way. And Clarence was just like that. He had his own way, but it was so, anyway, the first I remember meeting him, I finally answered your question, I'm so sorry, <laughs> is, uh, was it Indian Springs, Maryland? There was a festival there, I reckon, 73? Is that right? I think so. 73, 1973. And the Colonels played there. And uh, that's the first I was old enough to remember having met him. And there's pictures of me sitting on the side of the stage. Well, they ain't pictures of me. They're pictures of them. <laughs> but in the picture, I'm sitting on the side of the stage just listening. It's cool. And... uh Clarence was cool. I, I got to meet him. He let me play. I didn't play his guitar then. But later, like a few weeks later, 
there was this Warner Brothers put together a a tour of all their art, not all, but some of their artists that were coming out with new records soon. Graham Parsons was there. Amy Lou Harris, Tony Rice was there. Um, Roll the Country Gazette was there, which is who Roland was playing with with Alan Mundy. Um, and Clarence was there, and that's when I first got to play Clarence's guitar. See, I was used to playing Dad's. 1955 D18, Martin D18. The action was way high. It's like a Dobro. And heavy gauge strings like Black Diamonds or Mapes or something mm. archaic like that. And um, I played Clarence's guitar, and it played itself. you just like, oh, man, this is so easy. Butter. And um, Roland and I were playing in Roland's room at the hotel in Annapolis, which was half hour from my parents' house. And it had a connecting door on the inside. You know how some hotels. Yeah. And then Clarence's room was there, and Clarence and my father were talking, and Roland and I were picking, and there were other people in and out. The door was open. There's a lot of Chris Etheridge was there, bass player, just different people. Um, that were on tour. They played in Annapolis and Philadelphia also, and I was at both those shows. Dad went to both those shows that I went to with him. And um, 73, I wasn't quite 12 yet. I was 11. Birthday's in September, so this is all, almost 12. But um, it was cool. It was the first time I ever played, played, <laughs> that I remember a professional's guitar because I was just a goober sitting in my bedroom playing, you know, and I always had a capo on because that action was high and that would bring it down some. So it was playable. Hmm. But uh, Clarence's guitar, man, it was just a dream. And Clarence, well, had heard that Roland and I were playing and he heard that. And he told dad, he says, look, he's got to have one of those guitars and it's made by this guy named Mark Whitebook out there in California. And if you can't afford it, I'll buy it and you can pay me back. And dad says, well, if you think it's that important, I'll just go ahead and buy it. And uh, so that's how I got a Whitebook guitar. Um, dad called him up, ordered it, ordered one. I want one like Clarence's. Except... Uh, Mine ain't as cool. I got abalone all around the outside of it and all around the headstock. And uh, it's way too ornate. I don't like that part, but I was a kid. It's the one and only David Greer talking about how he first met Clarence. Um, and I asked him also how he found out that Clarence had died and how he felt about that. And it's a tricky question to ask because I am a fan of this music and these people are musicians I admire and the music is something I admire but it's it's a remove I don't know these people we're talking about I didn't know Tony Rice or Doc Watson obviously and I didn't know Clarence White and I'm mindful that these are real people in some of the lives of people I'm talking to it's not they're not just a name on a CD case or you know and and David you know 
very openly and honestly answered the question. And it was, you know, a part of the reason that I love this conversation with David Greer. But yeah, here's the final little snippet from David. So that that time that you sort of spent around Clarence, and it was in 73, can't have been that much before he passed, I guess. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, how how did you find out about that? I was in the bathtub. I got school. I was getting ready for bed. So I was in the bath. <laughs> How's that for a lead-in? But uh, Dad got a phone call. I heard the phone ring, and Dad's talking on the phone, you know, in the living room. And they come in and told me. I said, uh, I just got a phone call. Yeah, good for you. He goes, no. Nah. He says, uh, I just heard that Clarence died. I said, what? Hit by a drunk driver. Killed him. It's like, oh, shit. So, get done with my bath. I'm watching TV. Not really watching it. Just sitting there, you know, just stuff's processing. I go to bed, lay down, and just start crying. <laughs> it was the weirdest thing. You know, not like, it was a weird cry, too. It was just like, where you lose your breath, sort of, and you go, <gasps> you know, Sort of like that. It was strange. And, like, I couldn't figure it out because I just met him. But I thought, I felt like I knew him through the music because I'd heard it my whole life. So, and I knew Roland and I'd met Clarence and he was cool too. Let me play his guitar. Offered to buy me one. He was, he was great. And that brings me on to the final snippet I'm going to share. Before that, just to note that I also put out a two-part episode celebrating 20 years of Mike Marshall and Chris Thiele's Into the Cauldron. Talked to Mike at length about that record, which is a record I love. Um, gave me an excuse to talk to all sorts of people. Dominic Leslie, I spoke to Tristan Scroggins again. I got to speak to Jared Walker again. A lot of fun, that episode, and I love that record. Um, and I also got to chat to Ted Olson again. We spoke for the Doc Watson stuff, but Ted's been working over the past decade on a bunch of projects with Bear Family, um, talking about some of the sessions that happened in East Tennessee in the 20s and 30s, the sort of start of the commercial recording boom for roots and country music. Um, and they were a lot of fun as well. But this last thing I'm going to leave you with, I spoke about David Greer and about being aware that the people I'm talking about are musicians to me, but they were friends and family to some of the people I talk about. Um, and that was certainly true talking to Alison Krauss about Tony Rice. It was very much true talking to David Greer about Clarence White, and no, none more so than talking to Wyatt Rice about Tony. Um, Wyatt hadn't spoken at length about Tony since he passed. Uh, I had a incredibly thoughtful hour with him. We talked. There was a lot of joy, a lot of laughter. There was a lot of lovely reminiscences. Um, and I got to talk to Wyatt about recording Church Street Blues with Tony. Um, and I'm going to leave you with that. This is the final bit I'm going to share. Thanks for listening this year. Um, if you've missed any of these interviews, go back and get them. They're all on bluegrassjamalong.com. They're all on Apple. They're all on Spotify. Um, they've been a joy. And there's a lot more coming up next year. There's some really cool stuff in the works already. Um, kicking off with the Earl Scruggs 100th birthday celebration. But I'm going to leave you for this year with a little bit of white rice um have a great end to your year have a happy holiday season and happy picking for church street blues you know we had already recorded uh 
I know the the songs that I recorded on the rhythm parts had already been done. I I thought I was finished, and he had done his solo stuff in there, and I was in the control room the whole time, you know, just hanging out, watching this all go down. So, and when it came to the last tune on the on the third night, the third or fourth night, maybe. I can't remember. I'm going to say the third night because I believe it was three days. Uh, the last tune that he played was uh, Pride of Man. So he went and played it. And he came in the control room after he finished the tune and got Bob Shoemaker to play it back a couple, couple times. He says, you know what? He said... Uh, he looks at me, he says, Wyatt, he says, go in there and sit where I sit. And he says, my D28's right there. He said, get my D28. And he said, on Pride of Man, that, soon, that song I just recorded, he said, when I take my solo there, he said, I want you to play rhythm behind me. So I said, okay. I had never played the tune before, but I had heard it you know, in the control room. So I knew the, I already knew the, in my head, I knew the changes already. So I sit down and just played the rhythm to, to that, uh, what he wanted. That was one of those spur of the moment things that I wasn't expecting. So, but it, it worked out pretty good. It's pretty excited about that the way, and that's the last thing that went on the record. <laughs> It's amazing because it's one of those that you listen to now and people are still discovering that record to this day. And if you get people to list the records where everything's like, there's not a, no out of place, everything hangs together beautifully, it's all perfect. It just sounds so together. The idea that you just sort of went in, picked up Tony's guitar and played some rhythm on a song you hadn't played before. And that's, yeah, you know, part of that record. Spur, spur of the moment thing. He was kind of celebrating that the you know the record was over and he was had a smile on his face in the control room uh, when he looked at me. I'll never never forget it. Uh, it's one of those things that always sticks with sticks with you, you know. Bluegrass Jamalong is proud to be sponsored by Collings Guitars and Mandolins, making some of the finest guitars and mandolins in the world since the 1970s. Visit collingsguitars.com and find out why. <laughs> 